A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 17 of the Korean War. Last time we continued our analysis of the incredible selective hearing present in the US State Department as the preparations for war along the Korean border reached their apex. As officials ignorant of Washington's secret intentions worked to wrest some concessions out of the Truman administration, 
Dean Acheson and his close circle of informed peers worked to stall and bury any suggestion that war was imminent or that the Americans were not pulling their weight in South Korea. As if suffering from their own disease, the State and Defence Departments continued to ignore urgent warnings from the Republic of Korea's intelligence services about a new development along the border, which had the potential to change everything. The North Koreans, it was said, possessed T-34 tanks, and not merely one or two or ten, but a large number, as many as 150. In comparison to the anemic anti-tank or armoured defences which the Republic of Korea could mount in response, any informed observer on the Korean situation would have known that if tanks were deployed, Syngman Rhee's regime would be doomed. The lightning strikes of the tank columns would rip through the peninsula in a repetition of the Nazi move through the Ardennes forests before pushing the South Koreans into the sea. All of this could be achieved before any appearance of American or Allied soldiers on the scene, and the Truman administration would thus have lost Korea in the same year as it had lost China. Two successive defeats would be disastrous for the administration's public image, to say nothing of America's strategic position across the world. The abundance of tanks and the sudden realization that they were in fact there were both byproducts of an accelerating Soviet supply run to North Korea and to a culmination of American intelligence reports confirming the presence of such powerful vehicles on the enemy side. The real question now was how would Acheson and President Truman respond? An overtly aggressive reaction could push the Soviets and North Koreans into preemptively striking before the South was sufficiently prepared. Yet, at the same time, a weak response would produce the same result of a defeated South Korea and an outmaneuvered America. On the other hand, Acheson had to be mindful of the fact that the application of too much anti-tank strength to South Korea would blunt the North Korean advance and reduce some of the necessary imbalance in the looming struggle. Without such an imbalance, the conflict would never seem worthy of subsequent investment or tension and would thus fail to generate the necessary budgetary increases which were viewed as the Truman administration's end goal, the weapon with which they could properly combat communism and implement the policy of containment as set down in NSC 68. In this episode, guys, we'll be bringing the narrative up to the point of when the war erupted, so yeah, it's finally happened, but I hope you enjoyed this episode since it has been a long road to get there and the road is far from over. Without any further ado then, sorry about all the rambling, but I will now take you to early June 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails' shop. That is right, When Diplomacy Fails has a shop. We have merchandise. And not only that, but after recently changing the shop and making it a lot more streamlined and a lot easier to order from, you'll be happy to know that if you have a need for When Diplomacy Fells' merchandise and if you want to peruse my wares without having to worry about sending me an email and messing around and all that stuff, it is now super easy to do so. Simply head over to wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop and click on the add item to horse and cart and you can move on from there. T-shirts, books, pens... Badges, bottle opener, key rings, and so much more are all on the shop, guys. And you'd be mad. You'd be absolutely mad to miss out. Should remind you guys, of course, that patrons will receive, as part of their rewards, 
a certain level of merchandise depending on what reward level they choose. But if you want to skip all that and just go and get yourself something, perhaps you're really in need of a mug or you just love that Franz Ferdinand t-shirt that I cannot seem to stop wearing, then by all means head over to wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop. That again, wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop. So the song of the week this week is Good Morning Mr. Zip 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 by Eugene Buckley and the Peerless Quartet, released in 1918. Enjoy it guys, and we'll be back with episode 17 of the Korean War. You see them on the highway, you meet them down the pike, in all of drab and tacky, all soldiers on the height, and as the column passes, the word goes down the line. Good morning, Mr. Zip, 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 you're surely looking fine. Good morning, Mr. Zip, 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 with your hair just as short as mine. Good morning, Mr. Zip, 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 you're surely looking fine. Ashes, ashes, and dust to dust if the camels don't get you the Fatima's lost. Good morning, Mr. Zip, 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 with your hair just as short as, hair just as short as, hair just as short as mine. Good morning. In North Carolina, 60,000 men, supported by 600 planes, carried out a complex exercise designed for use especially against a tank-led assault. This was called Operation Swarmer, and while it wasn't heavily emphasised by the Truman administration, nor was it even mentioned to Ambassador Mucho, the American ambassador to South Korea, it was reported on somewhat innocently in the papers. Both the Washington Post and New York Times covered the manoeuvres over the 1st to the 3rd of May 1950 in what was designed to demonstrate the practicality of an entirely air-flown attack or counter-attack. Conceivably, the method might be employed in some circumstances rather than establishing amphibious beachheads. One could be forgiven for wondering why such a large-scale operation was underway, and what it had to do with the situation unfolding on the Korean Peninsula. Well guys, while we saw in the last episode the US State Department refusing, stubbornly but also with some veiled excuses, to do anything to bolster the South Korean position, or to ease the concerns of President Syngman Rhee, in reality the Truman administration was covering its bases, just not in the way that you might expect. Rather than shipping several divisions to South Korea, and rather than publicly signalling its renewed interest and dedication to the South Korean government, Washington played a different game. Large-scale manoeuvres like Operation Swarmer would be used to practice the kind of tactics and order necessary to respond to any emergency situation in South Korea. During the course of the exercise, the transportation of large bodies of men, anti-tank exercises, and multi-divisional cooperation were all practised. Through these means, the United States could secretly prepare itself for the worst scenario, which, as we saw last time, began to dawn in Washington as news of North Korea's tank capabilities 
began to filter in, ever so gradually, to the Truman administration. Dean Acheson was determined that even while such operations were underway, no sense of the preparations would be communicated either to America's rivals or to the likes of Ambassador Muccio, who had been in Washington several weeks before Operation Swarmer had begun, and who had been pleading with Washington in the meantime for just such an operation to signal to South Korea that it meant business. As Richard C. Thornton put it though, While American military preparations were underway, American leaders betrayed no sense of alarm. Operation Swarmer, it was said, was just another military exercise designed to keep American soldiers fresh and supple. Yet, Swarmer was just one of several preparatory acts undertaken by an administration, which, while on the surface, refused to countenance rushing to South Korea's aid, in private was preparing for war. Such preparations suggest that Washington may have broken the communist codes, but as we have seen, American intelligence was based on more evidence than simply reading the mail of one's enemy. A permanent submarine espionage operation was underway outside Vladivostok, Sleeper agents remained in place in North Korea and in the docks where the Soviet aid departed and was received in the north. Added to this was imagery provided by reconnaissance aircraft, which had begun to detect a large buildup of T-34 tanks, far out of proportion to what had initially been expected. Even while tanks had been detected in late April, hence Operation Swarmer, By late May, the sheer number of tanks guaranteed that such exercises would be necessary to defend Seoul in the event that these tanks were used. The timeline can seem complicated, and I know, guys, it is kind of hard to follow everything, especially because you don't, like, have a book in front of you or anything, you're just trying to follow the story as best as you can, but try not to worry about keeping pace with everything too much. There were a lot of contradictory statements being put out by the State Department, you see, and that, of course, doesn't help matters. The officials also talked to the media, like Senator Tom Connolly, who we saw last time, voiced an opinion which shattered morale in Seoul. So there was a lot of things going on at once, and I don't expect you to remember all of them. Even while Acheson's subsequent comments patched up some of the damage that Tom Connolly had made to morale in South Korea, Acheson himself never gave off any public indication of these secret preparations, which could also be passed off as really routine exercises, with no concrete links to the war to come. Because of the careful nature of the State Department in conducting its operations, apparently apart from any looming conflict, we must connect the dots ourselves when it comes to the war preparations. Operation Swarmer was also followed by a combining of 7th Fleet with its British counterparts and a rallying at Guam where manoeuvres took place. As early as March, in fact, subtle cooperation at sea in the Pacific between the British and Americans hinted at something big, and again, these manoeuvres were covered in the papers, and one historian remarked that the fleets hanging out at Guam contained the most seasoned group of amphibious experts in the Pacific fleet. Nor was the Air Force excluded from such preparations. Despite Ambassador Muccio's urgent pleas and offers to trade outdated fighter planes for cash, Acheson had always proved reluctant, yet Acheson would certainly have been aware that even as he pretended to Mucho as though no such air power was necessary, in reality, a complete revamping of the United States' air capabilities was underway. 
The US Air Force announced on the 11th of May 1950 that the Military Air Transport Service was being revamped to transform the organisation into a strategic airlift force that could be expanded swiftly in wartime mobilisation. It should strike us as interesting that the transportation and airlift capabilities of the Air Force were so redesigned, especially a month before the outbreak of the Korean War. All of these developments could of course be put down to coincidence. Washington was merely rolling along with the motions, upgrading and updating its military institutions on an ad hoc basis and making improvements where it's all fit. Indeed, since the State Department never stated anything to the contrary, we are left only with scant reports and innocent observations of some newspapers whose coverage was likely only allowed to go ahead because to cover up such large-scale changes to the military would potentially be viewed as suspicious. Far better it was to be transparent about what the military was doing lately. A regime with nothing to hide can't be planning anything. If my theory is correct, and if the theory of Richard C. Thornton is correct, then it's hard to not be impressed with the Truman administration, and if Washington managed to engage in what were essentially acts of mobilisation in hindsight, but which appeared at the time to be innocent, run-of-the-mill operations, then American leaders were managing to hide their intentions in plain sight. And we should know that the preparations didn't stop with the Navy, the Air Force, or in the creation of a large task force capable of deployment against tank-led enemies. All of these actions would seem suspicious as we look back at the record for evidence of subtle preparation, but it is the heightened state of alert in the armed forces in particular that I found most convincing in favour of my theory. You see, in early June 1950, President Truman paid a visit to the United States Marine Corps, which was engaging in intense preparations for amphibious operations. Of course, Marines were always preparing for such operations, hence their name. Yes, I accept that, but while Truman visited the Marines at their base in Quantico, Virginia, he was said to have been especially complimentary of their new combat tactics. In particular, the President observed the Marines... New invasion by helicopter technique, hailed as the amphibious warfare method of tomorrow, bazookas, jet fighters and intricately coordinated close air support of ground troops. These manoeuvres were reported on in the Washington Post on the 16th of June 1950, which was less than 10 days before the war would erupt. Again, the lack of a media blackout suggests that either Atchison wanted the world to know what was going on, or that he didn't wish to cover anything up, in case it aroused suspicion. By giving the impression that it was business as usual, all the while refusing to invest more support into Seoul, and in fact remaining silent over the cables with the embassy's channel until the outbreak of war for crying out loud, Atchison was ensuring that the image was maintained. But behind the scenes, this is where it gets really interesting, behind the scenes, the threat posed by the North Korean armoured divisions in particular were being taken very seriously, especially from late May onwards, and the Americans were not even finished yet. On the 19th of June 1950, War Plan SL-17 was approved, printed, and distributed to the General Staff and the Technical Services in the week of the 19th of June 1950. In the War Plan's own wording, it contained several contingencies, but of the most interest was its description of what was believed to be the most likely outcome of an invasion by the North into the South of Korea. This would involve, in the war plan's words, 
a retreat and defence of the Pusan perimeter, build up and break out, and an amphibious landing at Incheon to cut enemy supply lines. The finished military plan, known as Warplan SL-17, can be found in the US National Archives in Adelphi, Maryland, but since there's obviously no way I could have gotten there, these incredible revelations were first noted in an innocuous enough looking letter sent into the Army magazine in July 1985, by which time such reports were no longer classified. The author of the letter who described the program was a Colonel Donald Curtis, who had been the staff officer in G4 Plans Division, and who actually wrote War Plan SL-17, so yeah, he knew a good bit about it. Our attention is of course drawn to the author's emphasis on the landing at Incheon, later hailed as one of the most famed Allied military acts of the war, and sometimes mistakenly attributed to Douglas MacArthur's sole stroke of genius. But it was in fact one among many war plans doing the rounds before the war broke out. War Plan SL-17 was actually drafted as early as September 1949, but the significance of it for us guys is found in its final approval in June, and all that less than a week before the war actually broke out. If the preparedness of the United States and the initiative it took in developing war plans for Korea as early as September 1949 seems surprising, then historian Robert Futrell in his book Analyzing the United States Air Force in Korea reminds us to bear the context of the era in mind when he writes... Since September 1949, when Russia had detonated its first atomic bomb, everyone in Far East Air Force had realised that the Cold War might, at any moment, break into the flames of World War III. Such a new world holocaust would begin with major air attacks against Far Eastern air bases launched from communist airfields in Asia. Everyone was tautly ready. Indeed, by virtue of its position in the world, America had to be always ready to strike or defend for the sake of its position and those of its allies. Such facts are important to bear in mind, even while Atchison and his circle gave off the impression that they wanted nothing to do with South Korea, or that South Korea had received enough aid, or that South Korea was secure when they knew full well that it wasn't. This was, of course, because the aim was to deceive the Soviets and the North Koreans, and to lull them into a belief in total victory on the peninsula, and to maintain such a convincing facade that even the South Koreans themselves would be fooled, not to mention some American officials stationed there. The price of deceiving one's own statesman was believed worth it, lest America run the risk of its bait policy leaking out to the world, and of not merely its rivals but the American people, capitalising upon the sheer cynicism of such a policy, bringing down the Truman administration in the process. All of the war preparations were inherently necessary to provide America with the means of making a sudden intervention in the Korean situation as soon as this was required. Thanks to the clear escalation of North Korea's armour capabilities, there would be no room for hesitation or delay. Had those statesmen at the other end of this policy, who had repeatedly been put on the long finger by Atchison, such as Ambassador Mucho, for instance, known that time was soon to be of the essence, it is unlikely they would have voiced much confidence in their superiors' abilities to act quickly and comprehensively. Yet the delaying tactics had all been part of the same hymn sheet, which only the top officials in the administration were permitted to read from. As Atchison and his peers well knew, though, deceiving their subordinates would not be the only price to pay for this policy. 
If it failed on the north over and the south before America could intervene, then a dismal failure and the expanse of communism would be the additional prices, outcomes which would likely topple Truman's administration, particularly with the loss of China still fresh in the mind. For the sake of security, the capabilities of America's armed forces were increased, and for the sake of the policy all were committed to, such operations were undertaken without a hint as to their true purpose. Indeed, neither Atchison nor Truman gave much thought to the other cost of their policy. In other words, the damage to the government's credibility, which would occur when the North did attack, and the Americans, having left the situation in South Korea deliberately weak, were made to look immensely foolish. Syngman Rhee would be able to wave, and he did wave the I told you so wand, the effect on US prestige could be disastrous, and so it was imperative that America's military moved quickly to first ensure that the war went the way it wanted, and then to respond with such force and vigour as to erase the initial bad taste. Success would paper over all defeats and embarrassments, and by setting Seoul up to collapse as well, Washington was gambling that the subsequent counter-attack could write a new chapter in American prestige and prowess, aided of course by the votes necessary to massively inflate the defence budget. On the 24th of June 1950, the day before the Korean War began, the United States Army alerted all combat units of the army for tests that will determine how quickly they could start moving towards points of embarkation in an emergency. This report, buried on page 26 of the New York Times, and only learned of the next day when the war had actually broken out, likely seemed like an unremarkable development to most readers, an unimportant trivial piece of news meant purely to keep the enthusiasts informed. The more astute among us would reason that it was some coincidence how, a day before the war erupted, America happened to place its troops in a state of alertness akin to a war footing for the sake of gathering forces which would be unloaded at points of embarkation, in other words, military ports. But why would soldiers be in need of ports if not to be transported somewhere else? And where would they be transported to but the bubbling cauldron in the Korean Peninsula? In my view then, while it is, certainly, possible to put all these acts down to coincidence or to run-of-the-mill operations, it is just too perfect a situation that saw the media repeatedly pick up on these incidents while the government remained officially silent. Had it wanted to, the Truman administration could have tooted its own horn over any one of these acts and used them to bolster the morale and confidence of the South Korean government, and it would have made a difference to Syngman Rhee's mood for sure. The United States had tooted its own horn for less in the past after all, but America was evidently preparing for something. I feel it would be hard to deny that, and whether you believe that it was merely remaining on guard or that such preparations were being directed towards a certain end, we can't deny the facts that America was preparing it, was rearming, and if not for Korea, then for what? The State Department didn't attempt to deny that any of the operations took place, they simply failed to acknowledge their existence at all. Much like he had done before in his talks with Ambassador Mucho, Atchison benefited from the very diplomatic avoidance of the issue. If he avoided the issue, he would not have to acknowledge the problem, and if he didn't acknowledge any problem, then he wouldn't have to fix it. Indeed, in a speech on the 14th of June, before a few acts that we've examined took place, 
Acheson spoke to the Civic Federation of Dallas, Texas, about America's unwillingness to strike preemptively against its enemies. The United States, Dean Acheson, said, could not ensure its own peace and security through isolation, appeasement, or preventative war. This country must strengthen the free world militarily to prevent aggression while cooperating with all friendly nations in advancing our common welfare. Acheson also went further, declining to attribute blame for America's problems on the Soviets, saying, It is good to remind ourselves that we would still have enough problems left to keep us well occupied, even if the Soviet Union were to be, as we hope it will someday become, our good neighbour. Acheson also ruled out isolationism, reasoning that it would be akin to appeasement, which would only encourage Soviet aggression. Another course of action was preventative war, or the claim that we should just drop some atomic bombs on the Soviet Union already. Yet Acheson noted in response to this that All responsible men must agree that such a course is unthinkable for us. It would violate every moral principle of our people. Such a war would necessarily be incredibly destructive. It would not solve problems, but it would multiply them. So instead, Acheson put forward an alternative, which he described as The continuance of the present policy, the strengthening of the North Atlantic Pact, the adoption of measures to unite Europe, more closely, militarily and economically, and continued American military and economic cooperation. And Acheson then concluded that There is a prior condition which we must fulfill in order to have successful and meaningful negotiations with the Soviet Union. That condition is for the Soviet leaders to be convinced that they cannot profit from a policy of expansionism, that their own self-interest, as well as that of the rest of the world, would be advanced by a settlement of some at least, of our outstanding differences. In the course of this speech, Acheson publicly swept aside the suggestion that Washington would preempt Soviet moves. Soviet moves were exactly what were expected in the next few days as the Korean situation reached a boiling point. By arguing against striking the first blow, though, Acheson hadn't merely removed any latent suspicions about some of America's Subtle preparatory moves around the world, if indeed anyone had noticed. In addition to covering his tracks, Acheson was also helping to create the narrative which would become so useful for the sake of American propaganda. The idea that America would suffer the first blow, that it would endure the first challenge, but that it would not be seen to attack first, this gave Acheson and the Truman administration an air of moral authority. Once the Soviet-directed North Korean regime attacked the South ten days later, Acheson was able to build upon this moral authority and the narrative he had set in place and to create something even more valuable, a moral superiority. By taking the high road, if you want to call it that, Washington was now well placed to request aid for the beleaguered Korean regime of Syngman Rhee. And after investing so much time carefully building the narrative in a certain way, it was time to reap the benefits. The American inaction in the previous months, the apparent weakness of Seoul, this could be put down to America's voluntary absence from Asian affairs, an honourable policy which sought to put the destiny back in the hands of the natives. It was the North Koreans, the story now went, which jeopardised this policy of justice and independence, and strongly suspected to have stood behind the North through this whole ordeal was the Soviet Union, that empire which simply could not bring itself to allow independent peoples to stand on their own two feet. Acheson had set up the Soviets, and Stalin, whether he cared or not, 
had wandered right into the trap. It was a publicity trap, rather than a military trap of course, and while publicity was far less important to the USSR, it was critically important in the West at this time. Armed with the image of a stricken South Korea and of a predatory communist regime, suspected of being in receipt of aid from Moscow, the narrative would be completed. Here were the communists again engaging in expansionism. Here was communism for the first time utilising a policy of naked aggression to achieve its aims. Here was the secret power of the Soviet Union, battering down a weaker power, just like it had done in Europe. Not only had Acheson thus managed to prepare for war without much scrutiny, he had also secretly set up the South Koreans and created a narrative which would enable the Americans to appeal to their allies in the United Nations. Far from a straight-up counter-attack, Washington was to pursue a police action in the Korean Peninsula and in the process make history by instigating the first instance of collective security not merely in the history of the UN institution but in any period of human history. The curse of the inactive League of Nations was to be banished and the world was to respond to a straightforward act of naked communist aggression with all the moral force of the free nations behind it. The reality of course was far more complex. What the Truman administration had done in the few months since switching policy from the appeasement of China to the nurturing of a beneficial conflict in Korea was nothing short of stunning. What was more, the superior technology and weaponry of the North, above all its legions of T-34 tanks, had been anticipated and an answer created in the nick of time. The 25th of June 1950 thus appeared to those in the US government as the day when the balancing act finally ended. Now at last, with the war out in the open, a straightforward policy could follow. Yet, as the next few hours were to demonstrate to the Truman administration, plans were all very well, until you get punched in the mouth. A succession of punches, some of them in the public sphere, some of them on the battlefield, and some in the upper echelons of government and military command, were soon to be landed. And then, a brand new balancing act would begin. Next time, we'll move forward with our examination of the Korean War by taking some time, at last, to bring you guys through the development of the two distinct governments on both sides of the 38th parallel. Now that the war in Korea has erupted, it is time to see how it was that Syngman Rhee and Kim Il-sung came to rule over two very different regimes, supported by two very different superpowers on the same peninsula. I hope you'll join me for that, guys. But until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 17 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening, my lovely history friends and patrons, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.